Well, I think Jonathan made it clear, and we heard, we know from this past week, this weekend is our nation's uh, 240-something birthday, I guess, and uh, I think it would be very fitting uh, if we just take a little time and pray again for our nation. Uh, there's so many things that are out there, a lot of turmoil out there, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. Uh, uh, for some of us, it's maybe even created anxiety in some of us, some of the things that we're seeing even happen in our streets and, and different ideas that are different than what we have known to be true. Uh, there's just a lot out there. And so if you don't mind, let's just take a moment. Um, I, go ahead and just pray for our nation. I'm going to close this prayer out and just pray as, as we lift up our nation at this time. Father, we come to you now, and I think there's many times that we come before you, and there's times we don't really know how to pray about some matters. And Father, we're living in what many people are saying, a, a very confusing time. It's almost like we as a nation are going through a, some type of identity crisis right now. And, and Father, I just pray for, Lord, the, the fact you just continue to lead our, our nation's leaders, Father, for those that you've told us to pray for, those leaders that lead our country, our nation. Father, that you would just grant them wisdom and discernment. Father, as we've prayed before, we pray for those that are we see in the streets that are just in turmoil, and, and we see hurt. We see all kinds of things playing out there, and I think for so many of us, it, it is. It's difficult to know how to pray about these matters. Father, I pray that we'll just take our cues from your word, Father, to, to know how to lift up people. Not that we would see people as groups, but we would see individuals in the, in the turmoil and the chaos. Father, that we would be very specific even how we pray for these situations, Father. Lord, I know for me personally that it is difficult to, to, to know what to pray or how to, what should our perspective be on, on all these things, Father? Lord, we're not a perfect country. Lord, there, there may be some repentance that need to be, come forth. But Father, there's also the idea of, Lord, that you've used this nation for so many decades, so many centuries now. Father, to get your word and out. And Father, I pray that we'll continue to be that nation, Lord, that, 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 that readily carries the gospel throughout the world. And Father, I do pray, and, and Lord, I know there's many in this room that, that probably just these, moment, these last several months have caused a lot of anxiety. I just pray, Lord, that we can take our, 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 our strength from you, Father, to, that you are our refuge. You are our strength. You're the one that's going to, to, to have to rectify what we see laying there in our streets and throughout our nation, Father. Lord, we know that what many politicians are calling the answer and what many people are saying is the answer, most of them are totally off base. Father, it's got to be a change of the heart, a change of the heart, a spiritual awakening that needs to come across our land, Father. And Lord, we pray for that. 
We pray it starts right here in our church, Lord, that we as people who, who call on you, on your name to, to be our Savior, to be our Lord, that we would look to you for, for the strength to, to, to be a part of the, the solution, Father, to what you're calling us to. And Father, we thank you for your love and your care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you will, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we're going to continue our study. Uh, I will say this, how many of you just love getting used to the mask? Have you figured that out? Uh, uh, I, I tell you, I, there's one thing the mask has done for me, and, and it's one of two things. I don't know if the mask is causing the bad breath or the bad breath has always been there. I don't know. Uh, but how many of you are finding that to be true? It's like, what, what's going on here? Is my breath always this way or is this mask causing this? But that's the big thing. That's my big takeaway with the mask. But anyway, now today what we're going to do, we're going to continue the series, Faith That Works. And today we're looking at the evidence of true faith. Now you're going to be shocked at how many verses we're going to attempt to cover this morning. We're going to go from uh, James chapter 1, verse 26, all the way through chapter 2 this morning. And so the reason for that is I want to give you a big picture of what James is trying to communicate to us because a lot of what he does are illustrations to the fact that faith does work if it's a true faith. Look at the introduction if you have it in front of you or here on the screen. Some would argue that this passage proves that Paul and James preach different gospels. Paul, faith and grace, and James, faith and works. Paul and James, however, are not opposing each other, but are arguing against the two predominant philosophies of first century Jews. Paul addressed those who believe that works brings about one's salvation, while James addresses those who believe that just believing brings about one's salvation. There's just simple belief. Paul writes about an inward experience. James is talking about an outward expression. Paul is writing about the believing side while James is writing about the behaving side. Now, when you take both of their views, you really have a beautiful, complete picture of faith. If you study Paul, you're gonna see the grace side of faith. But if you study James, you're gonna see that the works are a part of the faith. Now, in this passage, James is arguing that true faith, this is our first point, true faith is not superficial or not virtual. Now, the idea of virtual is the appearance of being so, but not actually. That's the idea of virtual. And he's talking about it really in that sense. Now, some would suggest that one of the greatest inventions of modern technology is what we commonly call virtual reality. With this technology, you can feel you are actually in a certain location or experiencing a certain thing or a, a, a certain situation. Airline pilots or pilots who actually fly uh, airplanes are put into simulators to train uh, how to fly aircraft. And, and thank goodness that they're getting a lot of training, right? But, but that's what they do. Before they're actually put in the plane itself, they're put into simulators. And, and so many other companies and, and professions are doing the same thing when it comes to some of that. War games, they say that now they can almost predict how wars will turn out based on uh, virtual reality, and so we see that these experiences, when he's talking about something that's virtual, these experiences are not real, but they feel real. The same can be true when it comes to faith. Now, there appears to be three groups of people in the world today. 
most, most of the time we say there's two groups of people today. There's those who are saved and those who are not saved. Those who are lost and those who are saved. But really when you think about it, there's three groups, three groups. There are those who have no faith. There are those who have what we call virtual faith. It looks and feels right, but it's not real. It has no real substance. And then there are those who have what is called actual faith. It's the real deal. Now, James seems to be alluding to that, or excuse me, Jesus seems to be alluding to the same thing when he says this. How many of you remember when Jesus once said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Do you know what Jesus is referring to there? The same thing James is referring to. That when there is a faith, it goes far more than words. There's something that comes with faith. If faith is actual and it's real, something will come with it and from it. And so James, if you really could say, you could look at the book of James and say, you know what? It appears that James is writing from that one verse that Jesus taught, taught us. And that would be true. So Jesus was saying that their faith was virtual and not actual. It wasn't real. It was superficial and that it would not lead you on a path to heaven. And it really, it implies also that they are still left in the darkness. So then James leads the reader on a path of discovery to reveal what genuine faith really looks like. And that's really the purpose of the whole letter is to show us what this genuine faith looks like. So what are the marks of true faith? Well, there are several things I wanna show you this morning that come right out of the text. First of all, it is constrained, it's not reckless. Faith, true faith is constrained, it's, it's not reckless. Look at verse 26. It says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious, thinks he has faith and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Now that's a pretty strong statement there. I mean, you, you're talking about James is stepping on toes here is what he's doing. He, he's saying, yeah, you, you need to get this right. So once again, James pulls the illustration from everyday life. The word bridled there here in this verse literally refers to controlling something that is strong, okay? Especially an animal. It's bringing a possibly a wild animal or something of great strength under control. Now, here in this verse, James states a thought, then gives practical illustration. He's basically saying, if your religion, if your faith does not have enough power, at least to change your speech, then the evidence is that your faith may not be real at all. According to this verse, they are literally deceived. The word useless means that his or her religion is devoid of any purpose or result. That means if, if you can't, even control your tongue. Now, let's be honest. How many times does, do your words get you in trouble? Your words get you in trouble? Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm there. Matter of fact, I spent a lot of time with family over the last week in trouble every time I turned around. It seemed like, you know, you've been there, you know. It's almost like you're ready to get back into your routine so you stay out of trouble. <laughs> but, but you do. And so, yeah, I've been there. But, but here's what I want us to do. Let's look at, let's suppose that, that, um, when it comes to this idea of faith, this uh, virtual versus non-virtual faith, what happens if I'm put into a car simulator? Okay, by the way, that would seem fun to me. And let's just say that someone has created a, a simulator and has created a virtual reality 
that let's just say that you leave here and I go to Wilmington a lot. That's where our family lives. And so I'm going to get out here on 74. Okay, I'm going to head east. Okay, and I'm going to keep going and keep going. And let's just suppose I'm sitting in this simulator and, 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 and they've done such a great job that I look and I see the landmarks that are out there. We go through Charlotte. We see the tall buildings. We go through Matthews. Or, of course, if you, now there's a bypass, which I love the bypass. By the way, did you know that if you have a bike rack, they can't see your license plate and they don't charge you? No, I'm just kidding. I think, I, I think I'm on to something. But anyway... Um, <laughs> Some of you are like center pastor. Okay, Benny, I probably need to send more money in, right? Okay, but, but the point is this. Let's just say that I'm headed to Wilmington. Now, if I'm in that simulator, it feels, it looks, the drive same. I mean, let's just say they've got the bumps in the road the same way it is literally. Have I really gone anywhere if I'm in a simulator? I may perceive to have gone there. I may have even taken the time that it would take to get there. I may do the same things. I may, I may say, okay, this is when I normally put my, my cruise control on. This is normally when I know I got to stop. And I may feel all the experience of it all. But guess what? I've still not arrived at the destination. That's what James is talking about here with faith. He's basically saying it is possible that, that our faith is not real, that it's simulated. That it's it's virtual. It's it's some type of virtual reality. It's not actual. So faith, he's saying, should be real, not simulated. Now, true faith, again, is not superficial. Secondly, it is compassionate, not self-controlled. So first of all, it is constrained, okay? If you can't at least control your words, okay, then maybe you're faced on. But second of all, it is compassionate. Look at verse 27. He says, pure and undefiled religion or faith before God and the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. So basically, he's saying the only religion that is actual, that is true, is pure and undefiled religion. Now, what does that look like? Well, notice the preposition before God and the Father. The, the, prop, the preposition before in the Greek is, a dat- is in the dative case, which translates in the presence of God the Father. It means that true religion or true faith or actual faith is in the presence of God. It is a real experience with God. There's something going on there. There's, it's relational. You, you get what I'm saying? How many of you ever heard that true faith or, or, or a, a tr- to know that we're in salvation, that we've come to salvation in, in God is basically because there's a relationship there. He's agreeing with that. He's basically saying that, that there's something more than something that's simulated. It's something that is true. It is, it is it's a part of an, an experience of a relationship. And then he says this. Again, James now gives us practical application in verse 27. He says, what does it look like? When, when God's really working, when he's doing something in you, he's basically saying, you won't look at a widow the same way. You won't look at an orphan child the same way. Now, you got to go back to the first century to really understand a lot of what he's talking about. Now, the widow of the first century was one of the most helpless places you could have been. Your husband possibly passed away, left, whatever happened. You're there if you have no children to take care. You're at, I mean, it was a pitiful state in the first century. And it still is to some places around the world. 
I mean, there was no help, okay? An orphan. Some of you have been on some of these mission trips. You go to some of these third world countries where uh, I was in India, uh, New Delhi one time, and uh, woke up early in the morning because your sleep schedule gets way off. And I was out there before the sun came up, and I saw all these orphan children just laying in the streets. And, and it, was, it was like, wow, this is what the Bible's talking about. You, you see, uh, he's saying that when your faith is real, when it's genuine, you see people's needs differently. There's a compassion that you have for those out there away from God, those out there who are helpless. James is saying that true faith is not self-centered, but compassionate. Next, true faith is not superficial. It is pure. He's saying it's not corrupted. Look at verse 27. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, in their need, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, how many of you would say that is a pretty big task? You, you know, I can go over here and I can, I can, I can at least extend compassion to a widow. I, I can go out and help an orphan child. But boy, you, you think that's difficult. It's almost like you say it's the toughest one for last. Now not to be defiled by the world. How many of you are finding that? It's a very difficult task in which we live. And he's bringing that up. The word keep here in verse 27 is in the present tense. It's a present tense verb that means keep on keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Not a one-time thing, but a continual process. It's literally a lifestyle of attempting to live out God's word. It comes the same way. It's stated the same way in Ephesians 5.18. You remember when it says be filled with the Holy Spirit? It's not a one-time thing. It's a keep on keeping on every day intentionally living the way God called us to live, unspotted from the world, undefiled by the world. And he's saying that's what faith looks like. Now, let me ask you this. Have you failed in that at times? We all have, haven't we? We've all failed at times. But what he's saying is it should always be before us what the world and its influence is doing to us. We should always take note about where it may lead us and get back on track. That's literally the terminology. Next, true faith is not superficial. It is blind. It's not partial. It, it's, it's not partial. Now, here's what I mean by that. If someone were to say, okay, so faith should be blind. No, that's not what I'm saying. I want to put it in the context of chapter two, okay? There's a big context thing you got to see here. Look at uh, verse one of chapter two. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of the, the Lord of glory with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality against yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this of the world to be rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom which he had promised to those who love him? 
but you have dishonored the poor man. Do not, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheming, not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you will love or shall love your neighbors yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Think about what he's saying here. He's saying basically what you're doing is you're looking at that person, you're sizing them up, you're judging them and thinking one way when God could be thinking in a completely different way. And the only reason you failed in that is because you showed partiality. That says something, doesn't it? You know what's really interesting is <laughs> uh, um, occasionally uh, I meet with other pastors and and uh, we don't all agree on everything, but we kind of throw things out there and discuss certain trends that are going on in churches today and trying to figure things out and trying to be more effective in, in reaching people the gospel. But one thing came up not long ago, well, several years ago, actually, in which um, I'm sitting there and, and basically the question was, uh, how many of you pastors, someone was mediating in the meeting, how many of you pastors know who gives what to the church? And about half of them said they did and the other half said they didn't. And of course, you know my thing, I don't know what you give, I know what I give. I think if I knew what you give, it would probably affect how I pastor. I mean, I'm sorry, but it does. If you got some, you know what I'm talking about? It, 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 it does, it weighs, I've chosen not to. Uh, better pastors than me choose to, that's fine. But one thing disturbed me about some of the talk these pastors had and one pastor, who's a younger pastor, and, and, and listen, I, I didn't make the best decisions when I was a younger pastor either. You know, you, you, you remember, right? Probably at times. But, but listen, I, I, that one young pastor said, yeah, the top 10 givers of each week, we send out a special thank you to them. And I sat there and I was like, really? <laughs> you know, because here, here's what I want us to understand. We don't know the whole picture. It doesn't matter who you see, who you look at, you don't know the whole picture. It could be that one of those top 10 are living disobediently. Maybe they should have given more. What happened to the, to the let's go back to the widow who came and, and gave her all and percentage-wise gave much more than the top 10. You see, that's that look. And, and, and I wanted so much to say, hey, pastor, have you read this? And listen, I'm, I'm not into business. I, he'll learn, I hope. Don't you? I mean, I do, I do. But, but let me just say this. I really believe that we need to get to a point where we stop judging people on their outward appearance by what they're capable of, what we think they're capable of doing and what we think they're doing. We don't know. We don't know. And so what he's saying here, he's saying don't look with partiality, don't look with favoritism. The phrase with, with partiality literally means you're looking at the face, you're making an outward judgment. It's interesting what the Bible says about that. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, you remember the story, Samuel's going out looking for the next king of, king of Israel. And he goes to the, uh, the house of Jesse and he's looking at all Jesse's sons and Jesse starts, he lines them up and here they are, here's my firstborn, here's this one, here's this one. And Samuel, the prophet, looks at him and said, not any of these. You don't have any more? Well, we got, we got the kid out there in the field. Well, go get him. <laughs> and they brought him before Samuel. And Samuel basically said, this is the one. 
But, but listen, listen to what it says here, 1 Samuel chapter 16. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical statue before I, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Looks at the heart. Those that show favoritism or partiality, this, listen, this, is, this one cuts to the core. Those of us who do that, we basically are determining what people have value and what other people don't have value. Do you realize that's what we're doing when we do that? We are literally placing value and withdrawing value from people. Is that the way God looks at it? No. Racism and prejudice says the same thing. If all of a sudden I see a, a person of a different color than me or comes from a different background than me and all of a sudden I'm making all these judgments and sizing it up, that's not what God says. He's, no, that's not the path we take. <laughs> it's not the outward. It's the heart. It's the heart. This is totally inconsistent with God's word when we begin to show partiality based on color of skin, based on economic status, based on whatever you want to base it on. Every individual should stand on their own as they do before God. Next, true faith is not superficial. It is informed. It's not judged. Look at verse 10 of chapter two. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so, and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, what is he saying? It's still in the context of showing favoritism, but what he's basically saying here, he's saying, listen, there's some of you out there who are saying, well, at least I'm not a murderer. At least I hadn't committed adultery. Those are two biggies right there. At least I haven't done that. And, and, and it could be the person who's showing partiality saying, yeah, come on, you're gonna put this in the same category? He's saying, if you commit sin on any part, you're guilty of all. And we know that. The Bible says, for all have what? Sin and come falling short of the glory of God. So based on verse 10, let's look at it this way. Suppose you're hanging over a cliff that's a thousand feet deep by a chain with 10 links. When about that time, one of those links begins to pull apart. In a moment, that link breaks and you begin to fall down. And on the way down, you don't, how many of you think you would sit there and say, well, at least the other nine held up pretty good. No, that one link is gonna bring destruction. It's the same way with sin. You could say, well, I've, I know the 10 commandments. Uh, man, those are big commandments. You're right. There's a lot of pressure to keep all those. Well, he's saying here, if you break even one, you're guilty of all. Wow. Doesn't even quite seem fair, does it? But he is. He's saying, this is a big deal. 
need to realize. See, he's saying the law reminds us of the same principle. If we break one, we're guilty of all. The law reveals to us that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. That's the whole point of the law. Jesus is saying that favoritism is a sin that makes us transgressors. So in verse 13, James is not saying we earn our salvation by giving mercy, but when we give mercy, we're demonstrating that we've received mercy. Again, the difference between virtual faith and actual faith is going to lead us into this next part. The next part is this. True faith is saturating. And really, if you want to get to the heart of what James is saying in the whole letter, is this right here. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But, but here's what I want you to understand. He's basically saying, these things over here, what you're putting so much weight in to, to say that you have faith could very well not be true faith. Okay, let me give you a picture of the natural implications of what faith really looks like when it's within you, okay? And that's what he does. So true faith is saturating. Now, there's something known as a saturation point. I think many of you know what I'm talking about. It is the point at which something takes in so much of something else that it is filled and begins to pour it out, okay? Uh, Going back to Wilmington, if we get a downpour, Okay, in Wilmington, it doesn't take long because there's sand there. doesn't take long before the ground's saturated and there's water all in the streets. I mean, covering everything, okay? It's a little different here because of the clay, but it is. It reaches a saturation point very quickly, okay? Now, what is he saying here? The theme of the book of James is that our faith should do the same. It should reach a saturation point where it is so filled that it just oozes out. Okay, that's what he's saying. So look on your outline. True faith is saturating. It produces works as well as words. And then first of all, the way he introduces this, he starts with a thought-provoking question. Look at verse 14. What does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Can this kind of faith save him? That's what he's asking here. So where does it lead? Well, it leads us to a thought-provoking illustration. So he sets up this question, and now he's going to give you an illustration about what true faith is. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, they have their basic needs are nowhere to be found, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit them? You haven't helped them. Now, what does this look like? Suppose Tina and I have an argument, and that's, that's very likely that could happen at times, okay? And she throws me out of the house. Thank goodness that has not happened yet, okay? Don't be spreading rumors about me, all right? She has a, it hasn't got so bad that she's thrown me out. Now, she's left a couple of times. No, I'm kidding. But anyway, you're supposed to laugh at that. I'm worried you're taking this too serious, okay? But let's suppose she throws me out of the house. I then show up at Gary's house and ask him if I could sleep on his couch that evening. What if Gary just says, may God be with you and slam the door? Okay, how much has Gary helped me? Well, some of you could be saying, well, Gary's just trying to get you to go back and reconcile with your wife. Well, let's just pretend he doesn't know how, that's not possible, okay? No. But let's just say that I'm there and I'm in need and, I, and he says, may God be with you. <laughs> Boom, shut the door. Same thing right here, same thing. Now, 
In 1 John chapter 3, this is from the message. So you may not recognize it right off the bat. Look at what it says. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? He's basically saying this is an opportunity for your faith to, to saturate you so much that all of a sudden you can, you can have some kind of redeeming value. You can help. There's a love that can come forth out of you because you're filled with love. He's basically saying, what happens to God's love? Well, he's saying if you turn a cold shoulder, it disappears. You made it disappear. You yourself made God's love disappear in that moment when your faith should have been demonstrated in such a way that you're there to help that person. He says, my dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. That could be faith also. This is the only way we may well know we're truly living, living in God's reality. It's a great way of putting those verses. John and James are both saying that works must follow words to demonstrate faith. Next, we have a thought-provoking statement about true faith. Look at verse 17. He says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. Now, James is about to now bring in an imaginary person who says, verse 18, look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, what's this saying? So you have this one person saying, I have the faith. The other one saying, I have the works. James is basically saying, no, that's not how it works. Faith and works go together. True and genuine faith is always demonstrated by works. True faith produces good works. Now, let me say this. I've taught this passage or taught these passages a lot over the years, okay? And one reason I like the book of James, and many of you would agree, is so practical. So it's practical letter, I think, in the whole Bible. And he's hitting all the subjects. And basically what he's saying here, the thing that I've learned this time with my study through James is this. The word saturation is one of the best ways to describe the way faith operates, Saturation. Now, we've mentioned it, but let me show you what I mean. True faith gets to a saturation point. It's literally that we're so full of Jesus, okay? Let's, let's get the picture here, okay? We're so full of Jesus that when we're squeezed, what comes out? Jesus. When we're tested, what should come out? Jesus. All that should come out. When there's a need that arises, Jesus, when, when our first inclination is to judge someone by the color of their skin or judge someone by what they have or don't have, it's Jesus instead. That's the way that we know our faith is working. When we're so full of Jesus, the right response comes forth, okay? It is, we're so full of God's word that faith is demonstrated, so full of his love that faith is demonstrated, so full of his mercy that mercy is demonstrated. But here's what happens. When something gets in, and let's say it's Jesus or his word, and it begins to fill us to the point that there's saturation, guess what else is going on? Something is also leaving. You, you know what I'm saying? You know, the Bible says over and over again, light and darkness cannot coexist, right? If I'm operating in the flesh and I can't be operating in the spirit at the same time. So if one's going in, there's gotta be something going out. 
So when I become saturated with Jesus or his word or his love or his mercy, my pride is going out, my self-centeredness is going out, and my prejudice is going out. Something is being replaced. You, you see what I mean? You see why saturation is such a good word to, to talk about what true faith is? It's a saturation point where we're so full of Jesus that whatever comes our way, he comes out. His love, his word, how we respond and what goes away. My pride, my self-centeredness, those things go away. Next, true faith saturates. It invades the heart as well as the head. The fundamental belief of all human thinking. Now, some of you say, I, don't, I think that's going away. I don't think it really is. But listen to this. The fundamental belief of all human thinking is that there is a God. Now, some of you are like, the trend seems to be going the opposite way, the way I'm reading it, the way I'm seeing the world. It seems like people, nah, deep down. Because here's what you gotta understand. The people, many times who refuse to believe that there's a God, they're rebelling against the whole idea of God. So there's still something out there. They don't see it that way, but that's what's going on, okay? So the Bible records that a man is a fool if he says there's no God. Any person with normal intelligence believes there is a God. There is a designer to all this, okay? So look at verse 19. He said, if you believe there is one God, you do well. However, the demons believe and tremble. <laughs> but, you do not, but do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He's basically saying, you may have all the beliefs in place. And let's look at some of these beliefs. Look here on the screen. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? We would say yes, right? Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day? Yes. Do you believe it uh, in a literal place called hell? Yeah. Do you believe in a coming judgment? Yes. But guess what he says next? Even the demons believe this stuff. They know it. Remember when the demon showed up in that person and Jesus was standing there? He said, are you here now to condemn me to the bad place, basically? You remember that, you remember that scenario? They know. They know this stuff. They probably know the Bible better than we do. Yet, are they saved? Do they have a faith in them that's saturating that there's something in there that's coming. No, they don't. The enemy believes the same, but what sets him apart from the belief mentioned in God's word. Here it is right here, Romans 10. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. He's basically saying it's out there. It's ready to be grabbed. You can create it with head knowledge or heart knowledge. Okay. Of course, any person, including me this morning, I don't, I not only want you to be touched with the head knowledge of what's being said here. I want it to make its way to your heart. And every writer of scripture, I think, and the Holy Spirit desires that to take place. So he says this. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But it, there's something else here. For with the heart, one believes into righteousness. The word righteousness is literally the outward demonstration of righteousness. It means there's, there's evidence. There's an outward demonstration. And with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. It's basically saying that your head matches your heart, that your mouth matches your actions. And when they do, that's salvation. That's what it looks like. 
So true faith is a matter of the heart as well as the head. A heart that a heartfelt belief changes a person. Listen, every person that I know, especially those who were saved later in life, can tell you the life before and the life after. And they say there is no distinction between the person I once was and the person I am now. You know why? Because of the idea of saturation. Saturation. When they came to know the Lord as their Lord and Savior, they not only had a head knowledge of what it meant, they had a heart knowledge. And it's so much so that it began to feel into them that all of a sudden the actions began to be a demonstration of that true faith. That's what it looks like. Next, true faith saturates. It demonstrates as well as declares. James is about to use two biblical illustrations to clarify this truth. We have Abraham and his two experiences. Now, why would he use Abraham? Well, we know he's talking to the scattered Jews, right? He was the father of the faith, basically, all right? He was the father of the Jewish people. Romans 4 tells us that Abraham is the father of the people of faith. So James is saying that Abraham is an illustration that faith is both declared and demonstrated. How does he do that? Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac the son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works, faith was made perfect. It accomplished exactly what it was supposed to accomplish. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was, rec it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was the faith, the belief, and the action that came together that formed the righteousness that was necessary for them to, him to have a relationship with. And he was called a friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not only by faith. Wow, big statement. So this refers back, if you were to go back and study, you wanna read it, it goes back to Genesis chapter 15. So in Genesis chapter 15, we have first of all, a declaration of faith but then in verse 20, chapter 22, we have a demonstration of faith. You remember Mount Moriah? You remember God says, go, I'll offer that son. He goes up. He tells the servant. What does he tell the servants they can make their way? Now, he's been told to offer his son as a sacrifice to God, basically. And, and he tells the servant, though, he says what? Hey, you stay right here. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. He didn't know how God, God made a promise to him. He took him at his word. He's willing to do whatever God, he just knew whatever God wanted. It was gonna turn out good. It was gonna turn out the way it was supposed to. There was that demonstration of faith that was going on there. And we see it, we see it clearly. Next, true faith saturates. It demonstrates as well as declares. There's a second illustration of faith and works. Rahab and two experiences. Here's what I love about what James is doing. He's basically using the, the father of the faith and a Gentile, a Gentile, Rahab was a Gentile. He's using two people with totally different backgrounds, coming from two different worlds, where there's a major distinction in the faith itself. And he's saying both demonstrated faith and works. And so here's what we have. First of all, verse 25, it says, Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Now, of course, the first thing we see is the declaration of faith, okay? The story of Jericho. You remember they were going into Jericho. They've already crossed over the Jordan. They're in the promised land. The first place they come to is Jericho. They send two spies in. 
and, and, and basically they got into a little trouble. Rahab rescues them and sends them and hides them and sends them out another way. But here's what she said to them. This is a paraphrase. I've heard about you and the miracles God has done on your behalf. I know that the Lord is with you, your people. Then she said, I want to be a part of your God and your people. That's a paraphrase of what she said. It's a declaration of faith. But then she gives a demonstration of faith where she's willing to help the spies and the people of God. You see what I'm saying? A declaration and a demonstration. So I wanna close with the application. Do you have a true and saving faith? Look at verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. If you separate breath from the body, what do you have? A dead body. If you separate faith from works, then you have a dead faith. It's not the real thing. So really the question is this, do you have a superficial faith or a saturated faith? Not just words, but works, not just head, but heart, not just declaration, but demonstration. Again, beautiful picture. It's the picture of saturation. That my faith is so real that it can't help but demonstrating itself. Not that there's perfection in there. How many of you know that part? Not that there's perfection there. But boy, there's times that we're just so full of Jesus. We're so full of his love. We're so full of his mercy. We're so full of who he is and what his word says that, that the way we respond is a demonstration of faith. That's where God wants to take us all to. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you right now. We just thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for the challenge that you put right there in the heart of this beautiful letter. And Father, I thank you for, for just the reminder this morning that, that it is more, it, it, there, it is about the Jew, it is about the Gentile. It's not just about a certain group of people that the gospel is for. It's about all. And Father, we know, as we've already said, for, for, for you to really demonstrate yourself in this nation, it's gonna take us as the church to, to awaken first, to awaken to your desires and the demonstrations of our faith. But Father, that's, that's where many times where that spiritual awakening happens in the church, that it saturates itself so much that it bleeds out into the nation. Father, that's really what we're praying for, for our nation. And Father, I just thank you for those that are here today. I thank you as I look around this room that most of the people in this room I know so well that I not only have heard about their faith, I've seen their faith. Father, I thank you for these beautiful pictures of faith in this room. And Father, if there's someone here today that that picture is not there, I pray that before they leave today, they'll talk to myself or one of the other pastors, Father, that they can learn about this true, this genuine faith. In Jesus' name, amen.